At this time, I want to go ahead and encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 19. Uh, Sam, if you want to go ahead and come on up. Sam is going to be reading for us out of Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And if you would, church, stand with me out of respect for God's word as we read this morning. Sam? Good morning, church. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God of the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Church, hear the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Sam. Pray with me one more time. Father, we, we thank you for this word. Uh, you have given to us uh, an insight into who you are. And, and Lord, I, I just pray even now, as we did when we gathered together a few moments ago before the service started, Lord, I pray for your help. Um, I, I am in a finite, broken man who, who does not see you clearly, always, surely, sees you with veiled face, and, and yet you've given this text to us that we might see you clearly, that we might let that then impact our lives. And I, I stand here, and I know, even in my own heart and life, that as I live life, so rarely do I do it underneath the shadows of these realities. So Lord, I just pray this morning that you'd help us, uh, that you would help us to see more clearly, Lord, that you would help us to live in such a way as we walk out of this place underneath the realities of what we're seeing in who you are. Lord, just pray and ask these things in your name. Amen. So uh, as we came to Revelation 19, we thought about kind of doing this whole section of, of 11 on through uh, the, the beginning of, of 20. And as I started getting into it, I was like, there is no way in the world we can pass up this little section about the white rider in the white horse and, and all of the glories that are represented in this text. And so I'm excited to share that with you. Before we jump into it, though, I, I want us uh, to get kind of a, a mental picture in our heads about what I think this text is calling us into. Uh, I talked about movies last week. I'm going to do it again. I don't do that all the time. But um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Braveheart. Um, if you haven't, don't run out and see it unless you have like a filtering device, like ClearPlay or something like that. But, but nonetheless, like I watched that um, uh, years and years ago. And if you don't know that story, it's a, movie, it's a, it's a story about William Wallace, the great um, Scottish freedom fighter. Um, and while I know there's a lot of embellishments in the movie, like that's a real person who, who led the Scots to rebel against uh, the English. And in that movie, though, there's this moment where all of the Scottish um, warriors are lined up and they're, and they're facing uh, the English as they come towards them. And the hordes of the English with all of their spears and their armors uh, are, are coming at these Scottish farmers who have like pitchforks and um, maybe an axe here and there and some shovels. And they're looking at them, and they're like, man, there's, there's so many of them. 
I'm not here to die so that these noblemen that we're here for, like, so that they, they can get more lands. Like, I'm, I'm not doing this. And, and so they begin to flee, and they're turning around, and they're walking away. And in the time in the movie, at this point, William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson, comes riding up on his horse with all of his war paints on, and he's got his little ragtag group of people. And, and those that are fleeing stop. And they look at William Wallace and we're like, wait, is that William Wallace? No, 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 that, that could be him. Like, he's seven feet tall. And that guy's not seven feet tall. But nonetheless, they decide, well, let's see what this guy has to say. And, and so they kind of return back to the lines. And, and William Wallace stands in front of them. And he gives one of the most motivational speeches in movie history. And, and, and he, he tells them they can win the battle. What ends up happening is the Scots, they decide to stay and to fight. Now, now, what changed in those few moments between I'm about to leave and flee and be terrified versus, man, I'm willing to go fight odds that look like they're way against me? Was it the 20 men that showed up with William Wallace was so much stronger than the English? No, that's not the case at all. They recognized who he was and, who, and, and what he was doing and what he was calling them to. And so they said, well, we'll fight for that. We'll fight for that because we believe he's stronger than the English and smarter than the English, and he's going to beat the English. And I think in a lot of different ways, what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 19 is very similar. Like They, they weren't believing in Mel Gibson's character because of, of, of the speech he made, but because of who he was. And in Revelation 19, we are seeing something by the revelation given to John that should give you and me courage and zeal and excitement and passion to serve our king, to fight behind our king, to understand what we're fighting for and where we're going. Because here's the reality of it. Isn't it true that we all face challenges every single day? Like, I don't know who you are. I wish I knew all the challenges everybody in this room face. Uh, I wish I knew you that personally, but I know that everybody here struggles with something. Like you're struggling with how to run a business and how to make that profitable, how to provide for your family. Some of you struggle with, um, uh, with, with physical ailments. You're struggling with the loss of a loved one. You're struggling with feeling like you're alone. How do you fit in? Like you're struggling with all those things. But then you add on top of that the struggles that come with just being a believer in this world. And we have to try to struggle to believe day in and day out in Jesus and struggle to be set apart and struggle against the sins of our own flesh and, and die to those things. Like we all face challenges. We all face these kinds of difficult things in our lives. And as we look into the character of Jesus, the one who is returning, the one who is sitting upon the white horse, my prayer is that we would become encouraged to not just see some theoretical or mythical characteristics, but these are defining characteristics of the one who saves and redeems and rules and judges. And so we see right off the bat in this text that John has sees heaven open up. And this is one of those texts where in Revelation that there's few arguments about what is actually happening here, which is really, really nice for a change. But we see coming out of heaven the coming of the one on the white horse. Now, why a white horse? Why not a blue horse or a purple horse or a red horse? Well, it signifies something. And in ancient times, the idea of a white horse was tied very much to something that they saw on a regular basis. In those days, an emperor would oftentimes go into a city that he has defeated as a sign of victory. And so what we're seeing in this text is that exact thing. This 
is a sign of signifying a complete, utter, absolute, utmost victory. Triumph. The rider on this horse is riding to triumph. We are seeing a military leader, our military leader, your military leader, my military leader, if we have put our faith in Jesus, and we're seeing a military leader ride out to absolute triumph over all of his enemies. Now, we love to see Jesus as this kind of loving friend who's full of compassion and he's full of care. He's a healer who sits at the bed of someone who's sick and dying and and holds their hands. And he's a teacher who teaches us and shares with us and helps us to lead better lives. All of that is true, but he is also the one who rides on the white horse. He is also a military leader full of power and might and strength. And sometimes it's easy for us to kind of overemphasize one characteristic of our Lord and not see him as this well-rounded, beautiful God that he is. And he is pictured in this as a warrior. This revelation given to us through John is pointing to this reality. Do you see him this way? Do you see Jesus as a military leader that you're going out to follow? And you're constantly listening for his orders and the way he calls you and leads you and says, hey, I want you to go do this and I want you to go do that. Are you living underneath his daily direction for your life as you go about building planes for Cessna or working in uh, as a doctor or a nurse or working in the home? Are you constantly asking, king, leader, what do you want from me? What do you want from me this day? We're not trying to minimize the love and compassion of Jesus, but we also, I believe, need to be confronted, at least I need to be confronted with this question. When he says, let's ride, will we do it? What about when he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations? Will we do it? Do we see that as a part of our calling, of our lives? Or do we say, oh, that's not for me, That's only for the people who stand up on stage and want to go to Albania. Are we willing to say, yep, that's for me, and so I'll go? How about when we read through the Apostle Paul the calling for us to run our race, to throw off every sin that entangles us, to throw off everything that hinders us? Do you see that as a command of your military leader to go and to do that, to do it with zeal and to do it with passion and discipline? Or do we say, oh, that's, that's not part of what he calls me to. See, this text is reminding us like he's the one who sits on the horse and he has the right to call his armies and tell us to go where we should go and how to live our lives and what to do. And we are privileged to be able to live that kind of life in the spirit of God, to walk with him and to see him carry out his victories in our lives. The question is, are we? Are we willing to do that? And John continues to see a picture of this one who rides upon this horse. And we see his characteristics developed more and more as we see what it is that he is called and the names by which he is called. And this is so important for us because in the first century, your name was tied to your character. That's not the way we name our kids now. Usually it's like we're trying to figure out something that's unique that you can't find a keychain on in some souvenir store in Grand Canyon, right? But, but, but to those people in that day, your name meant something. Like it was powerful. 
like it was a characteristic of who you are or a family in which you came from and a history of that family that you came from. Like it talked about your lineage and your heritage and the character of the type of man or woman that you were to be. And we are now told a variety of names that this writer has. And the first one is he's called Faithful and True. Look at it with me. And then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire. Now I hope when you read this statement, you do what I did when I asked, when I read it the first time, and I thought, like, what is he faithful and true to? Now, the easy answer is everything, because it's Jesus, and that's absolutely true. He is faithful and true to everything, and to everything that he says. But very specifically, I think we're given a hint as to what the context is in this text, when it talks about the trueness being tied to his righteous judgment, and the war that he is making against evil. No one is going to escape this writer. He said that the wicked will be dealt with, they're going to be dealt with. He's going to be faithful and true to all of his promises. His eyes, they're like flames. He sees all. You remember we talked about this early on. He sees everything. His judgment is absolutely pure. It is absolutely right. As Hebrews says, everyone, everything lays naked before him, like we're bare before him. That's kind of uncomfortable because you know the thoughts you've had this morning. You know the thoughts you've had this week. You know the feelings of anger and things that are part of it. Like we, we try to hide that stuff. We can't hide it from this writer. Like he sees it all. The wicked think that they can hide. The wicked think that they can just ignore the fact that he exists and avoid the consequences of the things that they do. But there is no hiding. He is going to be faithful and true to carry out his purposes all the way to the end even as believers like we should not forget this there's many who walk in sin thinking that as long as they avoid the consequences as long as they keep it hidden long enough like they're they're fine and they can just rely upon the grace of jesus we're not called to live that kind of a life and he sees you he sees me and he's coming again and he's faithful and true He's faithful and true to to judge, and he's faithful and true to vindicate his people. Next, we see that he's called the word of God. Revelation 19, 12 through 15. On his heads are many diadems, and he is a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now let's walk through this text a little bit. First we see that on his head are many diadems, many crowns. Now what is that signifying? What's that pointing to? Because we've seen that in Revelation a couple of other times. Remember we saw the dragon in chapter 12 verse 3. He had seven crowns or diadems on his head. The beast has 10 diadems we see in Revelation 13, 1. And on those crowns of the beast is a name of blasphemous names. But here, we are wielding, or they are wielding a false power. 
a false authority, a false right to the throne to reign, we see the rider come. And how many crowns does he have upon his head? He has many. I wish you could see this picture because I can't quite visualize what John saw, but he saw enough there that he can't even number them. He just says, like, there's many crowns, which is signaling that this rider has absolute authority. He has absolute power. He has absolute right to reign and to the throne. You should be reminded of that. He has true, unquestionable, unchallengeable authority. But what about this mysterious name, this mysterious name that no one knows but himself. What is that? Well, it's a mystery. We don't know. Like, and for me to tell you what it means, it would be a, simply a guess at best. And we could think, many believe that it's tied to maybe the name of Yahweh written upon his head as a symbol of the way it was in the priests in the Old Testament who served in the temple. Uh, but we, we simply don't know. But here's what we do know. We do know that there is another mystery that's going to be revealed, and it's the mystery of his name being called the Word of God. And we are about to see that worked out in history in real time and space with power and might. I want you to think about what it means to be called the Word of God. What does that mean to us? We say it all the time. We think of John where it talks about how the Word became flesh and the Word um, was with God and was God. And we think about what that means, but do we ever ponder what is behind this idea? What happens when God speaks? I mean, go, go back to creation, and there's nothing. And the living God simply says, create. And out of nothing comes stuff that we can't even wrap our minds around, like the size of a sun that we, we orbit around. How many millions of Earths can fit into this? Like, our brains can't even comprehend the immensity of that creation. And, and he just speaks it and it comes. And he just speaks it, and out of the dust comes all of the, the, the muscular and vascular systems of mankind and our synapses and our brains and soul and body. Like We still, 6,000 years into this thing, don't even understand all that stuff. And he just speaks it, and it happens. It defies physics. It, it creates the laws of physics. Like This is this is a power like we cannot even comprehend when we speak of the word of God. How about when God said, redeem them? With that word, he sent the word to this planet to become incarnate, to redeem, to deliver, to bring to life that which was dead, to save us. With one word, it was absolutely completed with one word. The word of God is immensely powerful. And in both of these things that we're talking about, we're talking about unwavering power, assurance, completeness, fullness. It is done. It's done in a way that my words, they simply can't do it. I can, I can take this water and I can say to it all day long, Become wine, become wine, become wine. I could say it every day for the rest of my life, and I could declare it to be wine. 
I could say you're going to become wine. I say, man, like, I believe that you're wine and I can drink it. My words have no power to make this wine. Jesus, on the other hand, the word of God speaks and it rearranges the molecules and atoms and recreates water and turns it into wine. Like this is the power of the word of God. And in this moment in Revelation 19, we're seeing him come. And this is a completely different moment than the way the word came 2,000 years ago, isn't it? Like this is the antithesis of that moment. In that moment, the word of God came into a little backwater town in Bethlehem in quietness and silence. In this moment, every single eye is going to see the word of God come on the horse. They're all going to see it. And in this image, we're given this contrast because you have two different groups of people that you see. You see the people that he's coming to bring vengeance to, and then you see an army behind him. Who's that army? I believe that army is the saints that have gone on before. Those that have died that come back with him, the ones clothed in white, the ones clothed in linen and the righteous deeds of the saints that we see later on, and they come back with their king. I think of 1 Thessalonians 4.17 in Matthew 24 that gives us this picture that as he comes with all the saints that have gone before, those that are left underneath the persecution of the dragon and the beast will meet him in the sky and then come down in victory with him. That's a beautiful picture, amen? And why is that important in regards to his word? Because here's, here's what's important for us. We see that just as much as his word is powerful to create, we also see his word is power to save, amen? And with his just as much power as he can save those who are lost, he will also judge those who refuse to come to him. That should bring trembling to us. This is the power of the word of God. This is the power of his speaking. And when he comes and he says judgment is here, man, that should be something that makes us consider our lives and the world in which we live. And whether you're a pre-trib or you're a post-trib or you're a, a, a pan-millennial or an all-millennial, whatever that matters, we know this day is coming. It is going to come. And the word of God will come. But we also see that he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. Revelation 19, 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, king of kings and lord of lords. There's dragons and beasts and false prophets. There's Babylon. There's the greatest kings of the world. All of them are going to be put to shame by this king. G.K. Beale points out that the name that is written on the rider's robe and horse or robe and thigh points to this idea of the Old Testament, where the thigh is the location of a warrior's sword, according to many translations in several Old Testament texts. And it's a symbolic place under which the hand was placed to swear oaths, which we see in Genesis chapter 24, verse 2. It's this idea that we're seeing that the oath that God has made with his people and creation to take the throne all of the promises of God that he has made to all of his people from the beginning of time until this moment right here, all of those promises are found in Jesus to be yes. In the title given to him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the ruler of all. 
He's the ruler of all. Now, while this is all amazing, and while this is fantastic, I want to get a little bit more practical. Because the reality of it is, is that as Paul told Titus, we're all still waiting. We're waiting for our blessed hope. We're waiting for this moment for him to come. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Like We're waiting for that. We're waiting this glorious appearance. So here's the question. How do we do this? How do we do this? How, do, how does knowing these characteristics of Jesus, how does it affect your day, my day, your life, my life? How do we wait well armed with knowing who is the one coming to lead us? Like what does that look like day in and day out? Because I believe each of these ideas holds promise for us today, in this moment. So let's look at these. We first see that he is the faithful and true one. How does this help us to walk, or how should we walk with this in mind? Well, first, I believe that it means that we should walk in a deep trust of who he is. I want you to try to enter into the circumstances of brothers and sisters in Christ throughout history, the first century, even other brothers and sisters who live in other parts of the world. And we're going to start with kind of the extraordinary and work that down into what may seem a little bit more ordinary in our lives. But, but try to enter into the shoes of a first century blacksmith who hears about Jesus and he believes in Jesus and he puts his faith in Jesus and he believes that Jesus is going to reign and he believes that Jesus is going to come back again. And so he begins to worship Jesus. And as he goes to continue to try to provide for his family, like, as a blacksmith, he soon finds out that the guild he's in has kicked him out because he will no longer sacrifice to the gods of the blacksmith guild. And so now he can no longer go to the market, and he can no longer do business in his town. And so he's got to figure out how to, how to provide for his family. And he can't just go to McDonald's and get a job. There ain't nothing wrong with that. But I mean, he can't do that. He's got to figure out, how do I provide for my family when I can't sell and I can't make within a community? And so you imagine this man trying to serve the Lord, and he's trying to provide for his family, but then he begins to deal with all the same things that we all deal with. And he gets sick, and he sees his kids get sick. Maybe he sees his kids get sick and die. Maybe his, his wife and his spouse gets sick. But he continues to serve the Lord. And yes, he's got the church, and the church is a comfort, and the church helps provide for his needs, but but there's real life and there's real challenges. And you imagine that this same man, maybe he's followed the Lord for 40 years and then finally he gets put in prison because he's a Christian and he's awaiting the day where he's about to get thrown to the beast to be devoured. Let me ask the question, has God not proven to be faithful and true to him? Is God faithful and true or is he, is he not? And we believe he's faithful and true, but yet we we think, man, that, that's not quite the way we want our lives to work out. Like I think about my wife and son coming back from Guatemala this past week and telling stories of going up into the mountains of Guatemala and, and walking for hours with food to take, take to these widows who are living in absolute nowhere and they're sisters in Christ and they're suffering from strokes, but they don't know what it's called. Breast cancer. A woman who has a, a giant open wound on her leg that's been that way for seven years. 
They have barely enough food to survive. They don't know what's going to happen. Has God not been faithful and true to them? They're widows. They've lost everything. Like, is God lost his ability to be faithful and true? See, this is what often happens to us as Christians, is we get this idea of him being faithful and true, and we try to believe that, well, that's the way it needs, it needs to work out the way I think it should work out. But it's not. Here's what we see in this text. He is faithful and true to his purposes. He is faithful and true to his goals. For us, for history, for life, for faith, for eternity, for salvation. And we know the reality of what's going to happen. Psalm 135 says this, For the Lord, his name is Yahweh. He will vindicate his people and he will have compassion on his servants. How does this work in your life? Now, practically, in your own life, when someone betrays you or when someone hurts you or gives you injuries, I mean, some of us in this room are walking with things that happened to us when we were little kids. Wounds and hurts and difficulties. Some of us experience all kinds of sorrow. How can you deal with that? How can you deal with the deceptive, wicked coworker who gets the promotion instead of you? How can you deal with the kid in your class who cheats, but yet he's the one who gets acknowledged by the teacher, and you, you know that's the case while you get ignored? How, how do we deal with that? You know how we deal with it? We walk in the true understanding that he is going to be faithful and true. He will vindicate you, Period. And it may not happen in this life. It may not happen in this moment. Are we willing to wait like Abraham had to wait for years upon years upon years? So this this text gives us hope that he is faithful and true no matter what. And again, he isn't faithful and true to carry out your hopes, your dreams, to give us the life we think is best for us. He is faithful and true to his purposes in our lives. And as long as our lives are aligned with his purposes, we're going to find him to be faithful and true with that. So often we forget this. So many miss this. They believe that God owes them something. That they have some sort of an expectation of a certain kind of blessing in their life. Uh, if, If they just do this, then God will do this. We call that the gumball machine. And nobody wants to admit that, but we have these expectations. Of, well, like, if I live a certain way, then surely God will bless me in a certain way. But God is not faithful and true to give us lives of comfort and wealth and security and protection. That's not what he's faithful and true to. He never made that promise to us. He's faithful and true to his purposes. This is the reality of who he is. It's why it baffles me when this week I read on a church, a popular church that has thousands of members all over the country, put on their website a guarantee that if you tithe and give to the church, that if you don't experience the blessing of God in three months, you can have your money back. Why is the church not fleeing that place? 
Well, they, because they're, but the reality of it is that they believe that he's going to be faithful and true to something he's never promised. Church, he's going to be faithful and true to vindicate us and to carry out his purposes, not yours and not mine. Our goal is to align with his purposes. That's what we should be doing. And that's what this reminds me of. Every day, wake up and say, God, where are your purposes for my life? How do you want to lead me? How can I follow after you? Because I know there is security and knowing that you are faithful and true, even if it means I get thrown to the lions, you will not leave me nor forsake me because you will not leave nor forsake your purposes. Amen? Like This is the hope we have in Christ Jesus. This is the hope we have in this text. How about the power of the word? Well, I believe it allows us to live lives of fear and rejoicing with trembling. Psalm 2, verses 9 through 11 says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. As we await him, we better take our sin seriously. We all have some, don't we? Like we all have some sin in our lives that we struggle to lay down. We all have some sin in our lives that we struggle to surrender. We all have sin in our lives that we carry that hasn't even been revealed yet to us. But we need to be a people who are constantly, while we rest upon the mercy and the grace of our Lord, going after our sin to kill it. Because the word of God is going to speak judgment someday. And he sees all of these things. And we need to be reminded of that. And we need to, on one hand, rejoice that if he has spoken salvation over us, that grace and mercy is there. We are secure in Jesus Christ and we praise him, but we also deal with our sin and we walk in obedience out of love for him. Amen? And if we are not walking that way, then we should have fear. Because when he speaks, it's done. Like we won't, when we stand before the rider on the white horse and he says, you're judged, we won't be able to argue with him. You don't argue with the word of God. You do what the word of God says. And so if God forbid we hear, away from me, I never knew you, like that needs to be a reminder to us to follow and to follow with zeal. And man, with everything we have out of love for Jesus Christ, not to earn our salvation, but because of our salvation, throw off every sin that entangles us, throw off everything that hinders to us. And it is so easy for us to live our lives and just pretend like there's not even a God in the world. We just go about the world in which we live. Titus 2 says this right before the text I read a moment ago. It says that we are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, awaiting the day we will see him come. Are we living this way? Karen and I, just yesterday, we were talking about how it feels, it's so easy in this world to just feel like we don't need him. We just don't need him. And we talk about the challenges that people walk through and we hope that they come to Jesus, but what about all of the people that don't see a need for God in their lives? 
Like they drive their nice cars and they've got their friends and they've got jobs and they can put food on the table and they feel all kinds of pleasure from this world and they experience all kinds of life, quote unquote, that this world provides. And you start to talk to them about Jesus and they're like, why do I need God? My life is fine. My life is great. I had a great time last night. Why would I get up in the morning and go to church? Like the club was fantastic. And they believe that's the case. And they believe there's no noise. But here's the thing. Here's the reality. And we all need to be reminded of it. It doesn't matter how much we ignore he's there. He's there. And he has an expectation for us as to how we are called to live, what is right and what is not. And we are all going to have to face that. This is such an important thing for us. And I hope that it stirs us to recognize that, that we are called to live as if the word of God could speak at any moment and end everything. That God could say, Jesus, go. And he goes. And there's people that we live next to, that we walk next to, there's things that we're doing in our own lives that we know either need to hear from him or that would displease him, and yet we do it as if it's never gonna matter. Church, we should have zeal because we know the one who speaks. Next. I think that this helps us understand that we owe him our allegiance. His commands are not optional. His word is not malleable. It's not like clay on a potter's wheel that we can go in and, and mess with and change and make the way we want it to be. Like we sit underneath it. And we need to be reminded that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That while he has absolutely made a covenant of love with his people, and we are absolutely to stand in confidence as he returns, excited to meet him in the clouds. If there is any part of us that believes that he does not hold expectations for how we should live, then you're serving a different Lord. Because he has called us into something. And I know that's not popular to say. Like it's not popular to say that our Jesus is one who loves us and died for us, but also expects from us a life of obedience, a life of holiness, a life of godliness. Like, is this a primary call of your life? Do you try to walk in this? Are you actively seeking to put to death the sins of your life? Do you recognize that you, that you owe him your allegiance because of the work that he's done? He is the king of kings. This is not negotiable. You either will be behind him or be behind him when he comes, or you will be in front of him, refusing to acknowledge him as king of kings. I want to be behind him. Like, do you? Like, I don't want to be in front of him. And I owe him my allegiance in this day, in this moment. There's been days where I try to wake up and I try to give him everything. So often I kind of get into these places where I go, well, I'll, I'll do this if you do this first. I'll lay that down if you kind of prove yourself to be there when I do. Well, I'll go do this if, as long as this happens before. As long as I become secure. Or you know what? You should just make me secure. And once you make me secure in this world and in this life, then I'll be fully obedient to everything that you've called me to. Here's the thing. I just want us to be mindful of this. When has this life of a saint been secure? 
Other than maybe a few seasons, just think about the, the people in the Bible who we most look up to. Think about David. When was his life secure? For a very tiny sliver of his time, was his life secure? And guess what happened? He got into a lot of trouble. When was Peter's life ever secure? When was John's life ever secure? When was Paul's life ever secure? When was Joseph's life ever secure? They didn't know what God was doing. They didn't know where he was going to lead them. Abraham didn't know how things were going to pan out. He just knew. He owed God 100% of his allegiance. Every time God said, do this. And he said, I'll do it. Do we live that way? I don't. A lot of times I don't. But we should. In every part of our lives, we should strive for it. Not to give him 80% or 30% or 60%, but 100% of obedience, no matter what that leads us to. That's the call of the Christian. And so while we await with these ideas in mind, like we are to walk in deep trust, we are to fear him and yet rejoice with trembling, we are to owe him our allegiance, like this is the way a believer is to walk as we wait. And the call for us to this morning is to ask the question, like, are we? Are we doing that? And if not, let, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's get back in line and let's follow the one who we know will lead us to victory. Let's, lead, let's, let's let him lead us. If you're not a believer in this space, I just have to ask the question, like, when he comes, where will you be? Like, when the writer comes, when the warrior comes, and the word of God comes to bring vengeance and to vindicate his people and to deal with the wickedness of this world, where will you be? Will you stand in confidence? I don't know where your life is. You may feel like everything is perfect in your life, that everything is great in your life, but without Jesus, this day is going to come and it will not go well. And I would just plead with you, I would plead with all of us to try to break out of our apathy and to see this is the most real thing that is going to happen in this world one day. And it's far more real and it's far more um, important to our lives than a TV show or a YouTube video or a, a shopping experience or how we can redecorate our new home. I'm not saying all those things are terrible or bad, but we give so much attention to that stuff and so little attention to the fact that our God, our King, the Lord of Lords, is going to come back on the horse. And as a, unbelievers, it's so easy. It's just like none of this matters. It will matter. And you may live your entire life and avoid the consequences of your sin, but there is a life after this one. And Jesus would plead with you to come to him, that you might be saved. I want to close our time with just a word of prayer, and then we're going to sing a song. As we sing that song, I just want us to look at Jesus, focus on him, fix our eyes upon him, and ponder, are we living in the light of and in the shadow of these truths and these realities. And if not, church, like, begin to, how can you change that in your life, even this week? Would you pray with me? Father, um, there's, 
so much in this text. There's so many things that could be said, and, and I feel like I've, I haven't said them even well. But I pray, Father, that you would help our eyes to see. Help our eyes to see the spiritual realities that are around us. Help us to see your character and to know who you are. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you, maybe for the first time in a way that, that, that dictates the way we live our lives. You are not a passive, weak God who just is hoping in heaven that some people will turn to him. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you speak salvation, and you speak judgment, and it is done. You are a mighty warrior. You are the Lamb of God, or you are the Lamb of God and also the Lion of Judah. Like, you see it all. Like, I, I want us, I, I, and I don't know how to do this in my life or, the, or what exactly it looks like, but I want us all to follow behind the warrior on the horse, to be obedient in everything, to strive with zeal to be obedient to everything that he commands us to do. Out of our love for the work that he's done, Father, you're faithful and true. You're going to bring these things to pass. Your purposes are faithful and true in our individual lives. They're faithful and true in our families. They're faithful and true in the church. They're faithful and true in this country, in the countries around this world. They're faithful and true as history winds down. Help us to trust. Help us to trust you. Even when it doesn't work out the way we want it to. Help us to believe the promise that all things, not some, not the good ones, not the ones we like, but all things work together for the good of those who are called according to your purpose. Help us to believe that, to trust it, but help us to ensure that we're called according to your purpose, not to our purposes, not to the purpose of some other religion, but to your purposes. So help us to trust. Father, I pray that we would walk out our lives in rejoicing with trembling and fear. We would take our sins seriously knowing that the same word that was spoken that created everything is the same word that spoke and sent redemption into this history as the incarnate word of God, is the same word that is going to speak judgment and is going to come in wrath against the sin. Help us to live with the same kind of hatred for sin that you have in our lives. Not to play with it. But I pray that you would help us to walk in allegiance to you. Not with qualifications, 
but to simply do what you've called us to do. Father, I want to pray for those in the room. Only your spirit can open the eyes of those who do not see you. So, Father, I pray that you would open their eyes. This morning, they would open their eyes and see you. And that like Peter, they might fall before you and say, away from me, I'm a sinner. I'm a wicked man. Only to hear the grace and the mercy that comes from the work of Jesus Christ. That they may be secure and have confidence on that day. Father, as we turn our attention one more time and praise to you, I pray that you would be blessed. I pray that you would continue to stir in us to work in our hearts in the next couple of moments. We pray and ask these things in your name.